Well, if you have your Bibles again, I invite you to turn with me to the New Testament book of 2 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. If you're a guest with us, we've been working through uh, this book, and we come to the end of chapter 1 this morning. I'm going to read verses 11 and 12, and I want to speak for a few minutes this morning on this subject, praying in light of Christ's return, praying in light of Christ's return. Second Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 11 and 12. When I first began studying these verses this week, I thought, how in the world am I going to write a sermon on these two verses? And as the week progressed, this passage has ended up capturing my heart and challenging me, and so I pray it will be helpful and a challenge to you this morning. And this is what God's Word says, beginning in verse 11. To this end, we always pray for you, that our God may make you worthy of His calling, and may fulfill every resolve for good, and every work of faith by His power. So that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. So far in this second letter to the Thessalonians, the Apostle Paul has expressed thanksgiving for their growing faith and their growing love. He has affirmed them for their perseverance in the midst of affliction and he has reassured them of God's retribution toward the wicked and his rescue of the righteous at the return of his son. Now, in the last two verses of this opening chapter, Paul encourages these struggling saints with the reminder that he is constantly praying for them. This is the Apostle Paul's practical response to their present circumstances in light of the second coming of Christ. Now, verses 11 and 12 do not record one of the many prayers that mark Paul's epistles, but rather they comprise a general report of how Paul prayed for this church. These verses reveal the Apostle Paul's priority of prayer, his petitions of prayer, and his purpose in prayer. You see, beneath the surface of his teaching, his preaching, his planning, his writing, his working, his exhorting, his discipling, his traveling, and suffering was the deeper level of spiritual living. All of Paul's external activities of ministry demanded his constant attention. But at the same time, Paul remained constant in communion with God. Paul demonstrates for us in these verses that prayer is the unending occupation for everyone who knows God, loves God, and serves God. In this brief section, Paul's prayers directly related to the second coming of Christ and his discussion of it in verses 5 through 10. The second coming of Christ is not only the believer's future hope, 
This hopeful truth has present implications for the believer's life. Peter illustrated this reality in 2 Peter chapter 3 when he followed a discussion of the return of Christ with exhortations to practical living. And this is what he wrote in 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 11. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? And in 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 14, he exhorted, Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. The imminent return of Christ has present implications for godly, holy living. That's why the Apostle John reminded believers in 1 John chapter 3 and verse 3 that everyone who hopes in Christ purifies himself just as Christ is pure. And so the hope of Christ's return should not only affect our understanding of the future, but it should impact our present living. And that's why Paul taught the Thessalonian church and why he teaches you and me the connection between prayer and the second coming of Christ. That future hope has present implications in our lives of prayer. And so Paul teaches us in these verses how you and I should pray in light of Christ's return. So let me show you, first of all, Paul's priority of prayer found at the beginning of verse 11. He writes, To this end we always pray for you. Paul concludes chapter 1 just as he will conclude every chapter in this letter. At the end of chapter 2 in 2 Thessalonians, in verses 16 to 17, he concluded with a prayer. And he wrote, Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. And then at the end of 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 in verse 16, he concluded the entire letter with this prayer. And now that may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times in every way. The Lord be with you all. You see, Paul understood that one of the primary responsibilities of a faithful pastor is to pray for the flock that he shepherds. And as a result... Not just 2 Thessalonians, but all of Paul's letters are filled with prayers that he prayed on behalf of the churches that he established and that he shepherded. And what you need to understand this morning is that Paul's prayers were not routine and aimless petitions. They were purposeful, pointed, powerful, passionate pleas for spiritual growth and spiritual progress in the lives of the believers that he shepherded. And here in verse 11, 
He made a priority of prayer on behalf of this struggling church. And he says at the beginning of the verse that he prays to this end. What end is he talking about? He is talking about in light of everything that he has just taught them in chapter 1 verses 5 through 10 concerning the return of the Lord Jesus Christ and their perseverance in their present suffering. In light of all of that, he prays as a priority for their lives. The prospects of the future revelation of the glory of Christ compelled Paul to pray for these weary and worn believers. And so Paul encourages them in verse 11 by reminding them that every time he knelt to pray, he prayed always for them. Prayer was a priority in Paul's life. Prayer was a way of life for Paul. In spite of all the pressures of ministry responsibilities that weighed heavily on him, Paul had unbroken communion and fellowship with God. And his prayer life flowed naturally out of his intimacy with God and out of a heart that had a burden for the people of God. And here's what Paul understood that you and I need to understand this morning and that you and I need to be gripped by and challenged by in our spiritual lives. The Apostle Paul understood that prayer links our present reality of life with the future revealing of Christ. That there is a direct correlation to prayer in our present living and the future unveiling of the glory of Jesus Christ when he comes again. And that's why Wiersbe wrote, certainty of being in the presence of Christ in the future does not breed complacency in the present. I'm going to say that again. It's important. I would tell you it's worth your trip and effort to church this morning, what he just said. That the certainty that a believer has of being in the presence of Christ in the future should not breed complacency in the present. In other words, we should not grow sleepy because we have assurance for the future. Rather, he says... It should act as a powerful incentive to holiness. That those who are eager to share in the future glory of Jesus Christ when he returns should make themselves ready for it now. End quote. And I think he's exactly right. That there is no time in the days in which you are and I are living, for us to rest on our blessed assurance as believers and coast through life because of the promise in the future of the hope that we have in Christ. 
My dear brothers and sisters, do you not realize that every single person in this room and every single person in this world has a date with deity? That all of us are going to stand before the Lord Jesus Christ one day. And do you really want to coast into that day? Or do you want to prepare for it now? And this, don't miss this, this was Paul's priority. He knew what he was going to face one day when he met Jesus. He knew what the Thessalonian believers were going to experience one day when they met Jesus. And he made prayer a priority in light of that future appointment. It was a way of life for him. And I wonder, is prayer a way of life for you? Is prayer a priority in your life? If I were to go to your house this afternoon, and if we were just sitting around drinking a cup of coffee together at the table and visiting, and I said to you, brother, sister, what is your plan for prayer this week? Brother or sister, what is your plan to spend time with the God of the universe this week? Could you tell me? Could you tell me what your plan is? Have you made preparations for it? See, prayer doesn't just happen, friends. We would like to think that it just automatically happens. But there is a reason why prayer is called a spiritual discipline. You must discipline yourself for godliness. You must discipline yourself to commune and fellowship with the living God. And as you discipline yourself to commune with him, prayer becomes a way of life for you and it flows out of your life. And it becomes natural. But I would submit to you this morning that for most of us, if you don't plan to pray, you won't pray. You'll have good intentions to pray. But if you don't plan to pray, you won't pray. So do you have a plan? Do you have a pattern of prayer? Have you thought about what things you'll pray for this week? Have you thought about who you'll pray for? Have you thought about what you'll pray for them? Do you have a plan? Do you have a pattern? Most importantly, this text would ask of you, Do you pray in light of the return of Christ? Does the return of Christ drive you to prayer? It did for Paul. Does it for you? Is it a priority? Do you have a plan? Well, we not only see Paul's priority of prayer. Secondly, in the middle to the end of verse 11, we see Paul's petitions of prayer. And here's what he does in verse 11. In light of the imminent return of Christ, Paul prays three specific things for these Thessalonian believers. 
And I'm submitting to you this morning that these three requests that Paul prayed for them are three requests that you and I can pray for ourselves and pray for others in light of the return of Christ. And I'm going to give you three words that uh, summarize the prayers. The first one is the word worthiness. He says in verse 11, do you see it? That our God may make you worthy of his calling. That God would make you worthy of his calling. Paul has already prayed a similar prayer for these believers in his first letter. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 3 and verse 13, he prayed this, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all of his saints. And in this verse, Paul is repeating this same desire, this same prayer, by praying that God would make the Thessalonians worthy of his calling on their lives. Now, when he uses the word calling, what is he referring to? Well, there are a couple different types of calling in the Bible. There is the general call to salvation that is issued to everyone who hears the gospel message of the Lord Jesus Christ in his sinless, perfect life, his sacrificial death on the cross, and his bodily resurrection from the grave. That every time that gospel message of Christ and what he has done on behalf of sinners is proclaimed, there is a general call that is ushered out from God through his word and through his servant to all to respond to the gospel. But there is also an individual, an irresistible, an effectual call that takes place the same time that general call is given. And in this call, God in his perfect timing calls a sinner to repentance and belief in him through his spirit. You would describe it this way. When I responded to the gospel, there were 200 people in the room and I felt like the preacher was only talking to me. That is a description of God's irresistible, effectual call. That He is, through His Spirit and through His Word, calling you by name to come to salvation through His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Bible says of this calling of God that no one can come to Him unless the Holy Spirit draws them, calls them, brings them to himself. Jesus said it this way in John 6, 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on that last day. And friends, when God calls, it's irresistible. The sinner must respond. And when God calls, it is effective. The sinner will respond, and the sinner will be changed. Their heart of stone will be broken, and they will be given a heart of flesh. They will be drawn to Christ in that moment. What they hated, they will now love, and what they love, they will now begin to hate. It's effective. 
when God calls a sinner to himself, he completely and totally saves them. And Paul says that God has called you, Thessalonian believers. He has called you to himself. And now I'm praying that you would become worthy of this call to salvation. Why would he pray that? Because none of us are worthy to be saved. The Bible says that we're dead in our trespasses and sins. We're alienated from God. We worship and serve the devil apart from Christ. That all of our goodness, all of our righteousness, it's like dirty cloths. There's not a single one of us that is worthy of Jesus Christ. And that, what's, that is what makes salvation so wonderful and free. Because he takes all of us who are unworthy and he makes us worthy vessels through his son. And there's not a single thing that any one of us adds to the work to make us worthy. Not a thing. It's all by grace. And even this morning, in this very moment, as you're hearing about and being taught about prayer, God is using his word through his spirit to call some of you to himself. And Paul says, when you receive that call to salvation, I'm praying that you'll be found worthy of the call. What's he talking about? Well, when you were called to salvation through God's Son, Jesus Christ, you were called, the Bible says, in Ephesians chapter 4 and in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, to live a life worthy of that calling. You weren't called just so you had fire insurance to save you out of hell. You were called to live for God. In a way that would bring honor and glory and praise to him. You who were unworthy were called to live a life of worthiness. You say, well, what does a life of worthiness look like? Well, did you know that the Bible is full of descriptions of what a worthy walk in Jesus Christ is like? I'm just going to list them for you this morning because I don't have time to camp out on them. But, but here's the descriptions. A life worthy of the calling of salvation is a life of walking in the Holy Spirit. It's a life of humility. It's a life of purity. It's a life of contentment. It's a life of faith. It's a life of righteousness. It's a life of unity and harmony. It's a life of gentleness and patience and love and joy. It's a life of thankfulness. It's a life of light. It's a life of knowledge. It's a life of wisdom and truth. It's a life of fruitfulness. And I have scripture references for every single one of those characteristics, by the way. And if you'd like them, I'm happy to email them to you. That is a worthy life. It's what God calls us to when we're saved, a life of a worthy walk. And Paul's prayer was that now that they have experienced this great salvation, 
their lives would begin to change and they would walk and live in a way that was worthy of the salvation that they had received through Christ. Now, here's what you need to understand about his prayer. This was significant because there was a major problem in this church. There were a group of people in this church who were not walking worthy of the Lord's calling. And he calls them out in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 in verse 6. And this is what he says to them. Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you received from us. So they were walking in idleness. Here's my translation of that. They were coasting in their Christian life. They were lazy. They weren't making the things of God a priority in their life. They had the hope of the return of Christ and they were doing nothing. Listen, they were doing nothing with it. They were just coasting and getting by and being idle. And their idleness was creeping into the church and causing problems among the fellowship. He describes it even further in verse 11 of 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. For we hear that some of you walk in idleness. You're not busy at work. You're busy bodies. They weren't busy about their own business. They were busy about everybody else's business. Do you know anybody like that? Don't name their names this morning. They were idle. And their walk for Christ was idle. It was coasting. They were taking everything for granted. And Paul is laser focused on the glory of Christ at the end of time. And he prays for the Thessalonians that on that day when they meet Jesus Christ face to face and he judges them according to their works and what they've done with what he has given them, that he will commend them for being worthy of what he has placed in their life. Does that not blow your mind? That Paul would pray like that. Church, you're going to face Jesus one day and you need to get out of your idleness. You need to get out of your complacency and your coasting. And I'm praying that you're going to live a life that is worthy of what God has called you to. So that when you meet Jesus Christ face to face, you will be counted worthy by him. You will be judged worthy for what you've done with what he has given you. Do you pray like that? I haven't prayed like that. This is a transformative prayer. That we would pray for ourselves and for others that our lives would be such that Jesus would say, you lived a worthy life. For me do you pray that do you pray that for your children do you pray that for yourself do you pray that for your pastor for the other elders and leaders of the church do you pray that for your spouse is not this text enough motivation with the reality 
that we're going to stand before Jesus and give an account of our life to convict us to pray this way? Worthiness, second word, purpose. Look in verse 11 again. And may fulfill every resolve for good. You could literally translate this phrase in verse 11, every purpose of goodness. Paul not only prayed that they would walk worthy of this call to salvation, he prayed that God would fulfill every noble, righteous desire in their lives. It's a powerful prayer. The word fulfill literally could be translated to complete every desire in your life, to accomplish every desire in your life. And the ESV uses the word resolve. Personally, I like the other translations that use the word desire better. Because he's talking about the desires of the Thessalonians' hearts. He's talking about the purpose of their lives. And, and here's what you need to understand about these words. It's really important to understand properly what he is praying. The language in this verse is referring to God's activity. That God, when he calls us to himself places God-given purposes in our lives. And Paul is praying that the God-given purposes that God deposits into us at the moment of salvation would well up inside these Thessalonian believers in such a way that God would fulfill these desires and these purposes for their lives. He described it this way to the Philippians in Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Do you hear that? He's praying for the Philippians that they will work out their salvation with fear and trembling. They'll do something with what God has put inside of them. Now listen to the next verse. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And this is the mystery of salvation and sanctification that when God redeems us and rescues us and saves us, he deposits things inside of our lives. He works them into us in our salvation. And then he tells us to work out what he put in. So you got to figure out what he put into you and then work it out and do something with it so that your desires and your passions are God's desires and God's passions. That you're united with God in these desires and in these passions. They're good passions. That's what the text says. David described it this way in Psalm 37. He wrote that those who delight in God desire what God desires. And as a result, God gives them what they ask for. Psalm 37, 4. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. See, if you're not careful, you'll read that wrong and say, well, if I just check the box that I delight in God, he'll give me everything I want. No, no, no. That's not what David's saying. Here's what David's saying. He's saying when you begin to delight in God, God changes your desires in you for what he desires for you. 
And so that as you delight in God, you're going to desire the same things that God desires for you. And it's all centered around being united with God and his desires and purposes for your life. David was so confident of this in Psalm 138 and verse 8. He said that even in the midst of troubling circumstances, God would fulfill his purposes for him. This is what he wrote. The Lord will fulfill his purpose for me. He will fulfill it for me. Do you see this, friends? Are you convinced? John wrote of the confidence that we can have in God fulfilling the desires of our heart. This is what he wrote in 1 John chapter 5, verses 14 and 15. And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. It's connected with our communion with God. So that as we pray and we delight in God, God changes the desires and the purposes of our heart to align them to his purposes and his desires for our life. And we'll want what he wants for us. And this is what Paul was praying for these believers. He was not praying that God would give them all of their selfish desires and fulfill all of their selfish requests. He was praying that God would save them from themselves and from their unholy desires. And that in turn, they would desire what God desired for them. Every good purpose that he had for their lives. Do you pray purpose in light of the return of Christ? Have you stopped to consider in the busyness of your life the purposes and the desires that God has placed in your heart? Have you? See, here's the problem. I can only teach you what this text is talking about I can't tell you the desires and the purposes that God has put in your heart. But here's what I know. I know if you're a Christian, he's put some in there. You got to work them out. I'm going to tell you some of the desires that he's put in my heart. And listen, here's what I want you to know about this list. Like This list is crazy. Like Anybody that knows me, this list is crazy, all right? And that's how I know it's of God, because only God could change the selfishness and the pride that lies in me to be united with him. Only God can do that. So I can't answer it for you, but I'll tell you what my answers are. Here they are. God put in me a desire to plant roots in one place as long as he would see fit for me to be there. And by the way, I would just add parenthetically, a place I didn't want to go to. Only God can do that. God put inside of me a desire to preach through as many books of the Bible before I die as possible. And so I pray that God will 
give me a sharp mind and help me keep making some kind of sense so I can do that. God's put in me a desire to reach men. I remember 18 and a half years ago in one of the uh, interview sessions with the search committee that was interviewing me to become the pastor. And we were talking about different priorities and passions and things in life. And this is what I said to him. I still remember it as if it was yesterday. I could take you to a spot in the road where I was sitting in my car for the interview when I said it. That's how real it is. See, it's personal. I can only answer for me. You know what I told him? I want to reach as many men with the gospel as I can. Because when men get right with God, their families get right with God. And 18 and a half years later, that is still my desire. That's why you walk away sometimes from sermons and say, man, he was really hard on the men. Yep, that's right. That's right. I want to get them and challenge them to be all they can be in Christ. And that's not changed. I'm still there. God's put in me a desire to reach back in the generations behind me and try to bring them along. And that, that's becoming more and more difficult because I'm not as cool as I used to be. But I still have the desire. I still have the desire. I want to know all the little kids. I want to high five them and hug them and talk to them so that one day when they need something, they can come talk to their pastor. I want to hang out with the teenagers. I want them to know that it's it's good to live for God as a teenager, that their pastor loves them, wants to connect with them. I want to reach back. I want to reach back to the young dads. God put that in me. A shy, timid guy, God put that in me. I want to be a man of prayer, a man of the word, a man who influences people. And this is from a guy who would rather hide in a corner. How can you explain those kinds of desires? There's only one way. God changes a heart. And he puts purpose and desire in you when he saves you. It's your job to figure it out. It's not your job to coast. Friends, Jesus is coming. Do you believe it? Like it is highly possible that we could not be able to gather here next week because we're gathered there. That's how real it is. And you're going to coast? You're not going to align your desires and your purpose with the desires and purposes that God has for you? Really? Really? That's how you want to live the last days of your life before Jesus returns? Really? You want to hold on to that private sin that is gripping you and pulling you down and drowning you in light of the fact that you're going to face Jesus one day? Really? That's the purpose you have for your life? You don't have a greater desire or purpose to do something with your life than rest in sin and keep it hidden? Really? Oh, you're fooling yourself. There's something greater, there's something bigger to live for than that. But if you never stop and think about it, it'll pass you by. Here's what I know. 
I, 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 as sure as I'm standing right here, I guarantee it that God has put some purposes and desires in some of your lives, and you've suppressed it, you've pushed it back, you've ignored it, you've tried to rationalize it away. He's called some of you to ministry. You've made all kinds of excuses. You pushed it away. He's called some of you to the mission field. You've been unwilling to make the sacrifices that it takes to go there. He's, he's called you to get right in your family. And you're just sitting there in your stubborn pride while your family is heartbroken over your sin. He's put purposes and desires in your life and you're just ignoring them. Listen, and you're wasting your life. And one day, when you stand before Jesus, you're going to be full of regret. As he wipes the tears from your eyes when you see what your life could have been and what it was. Purpose. Purpose. I'm going to stop with this. The third request is power. And every work of faith by his power at the end of verse 11. The word fulfill in verse 11 is connected to purpose and it's connected to power. And here's what Paul's praying. And I'm just, I'm just going to summarize it and stop. I, I feel like we just need to stop. To live your purpose, you can't do it in your own strength. You need God's power. You need God's power to live a life worthy of the calling that he's given you. You need God's power to fulfill the purposes and the desires that he's placed in your life. You can't fulfill them. You can't walk in this way in your own strength and power. That's why you continue to struggle. And here's the reality. You're just not dependent upon God enough. You're dependent upon yourself. And because you depend upon yourself, you get what only yourself can produce. You never get what God can produce in your life because you don't humble yourself and depend upon him. And so Paul prayed that they would have the power of God upon their lives as they prepared to meet Jesus face to face. The power of God resting on you. You know, if you're a Christian, the power of God lives inside of you through his spirit. And so you're walking in the spirit in a manner worthy of his calling. You're depending upon his power and not your own. And when you figure out his purpose and his desire for your life, you'll never be able to accomplish it without his power, without his help. That's what he prayed for him. Do you pray that way? Do you pray for your kids that they'll discover God's purpose and desire for their life and they'll pursue it? Do you pray that they'll be dependent upon God and know his power? Do you pray that for your spouse? Do you pray that for yourself? Do you pray that for others that you care about? This is really how we should pray 
in light of the return of Christ because he's coming back soon. Puritans believed that. They believed in the imminent return of Christ that he could come at any moment. And we've just got so complacent. We think, yeah, he's going to come back one day, but never in my lifetime. How do you know? How do you know? You don't know. That's why you get ready now. And here's what I know. There's some in this room who are not ready to meet Jesus face to face. Some of you, I've, I've prayed for your salvation. I continue to pray for your salvation. Because I'm scared to death that if Jesus comes back or if you die, you won't be ready. And, and, and I'm, I'm so confident in this prayer. Here's what I know. Here's what I believe is your pastor. I think you know it too. I think you know it too. And you're just suppressing it and ignoring it. And what I want to say to you today is that if you hear the call of God, don't harden your heart. Respond to God's offer of salvation through his son in Jesus Christ. This is a safe place to do. This is the safest place in the world to do that. Some of us in this room aren't ready today to meet Christ. Because there's things we've covered up in our lives. We act a certain way here at church, and we are like the devil in our house. At work, wherever it may be. Some of us have stuff hidden, and it's choking out God's purpose and desire. And my challenge to you today would just simply be this. Wouldn't you want to be free from that so you'd be ready? Wouldn't you want to get right today to be ready on that day? And some of us have just grown so complacent. We're just going through the motions, just coasting, riding it out. God's got bigger things for us than that. We need to ask God to revive us and renew us today. So I, I, here's, here's the deal. I don't know what you need to pray. I know what I needed to pray after I studied this passage. And the reason why I've said things to you that I've said today is because I said them to me in private. I preached the sermon to me before I preached it to you. And there are things that I needed to say to God as a result of this study. And I'm wondering what you need to say to him today. I'm wondering what that might be. So we don't do this often, but we're going to do it today. We're going to stand in a moment, and we're going to sing. And if you need to come and talk to God, the altars are open for that today. You can do it right where you're standing. You might need to come and respond in the altar day. If you need to do that, altar's open for you to do that. If you need to come to Christ today and you want to do it now while we're singing I will greet you right here at the front and talk with you. Others will greet you as well. If you need to go to somebody in this room and get right in light of God's word, then do it while we sing. Why would you wait? Why would you not do it now if God is leading you to do that in your heart? What God desires of his people is obedience. 
And so I'm, I'm challenging us to obedience today, whatever that looks like for us individually. Let's stand together for prayer.